Hey there, everyone. Welcome back for another exciting episode of Debating Metal. I'm Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. This week, we're going head-to-head with one of the most decorated American bands in music history. Tonight, it's Aerosmith, Toys in the Attic versus Rocks, two of the band's biggest albums from the 70s. We're going to review all the tracks from both albums, offer our opinions on each, and then at the end, we'll determine which album we think is better. And as always, I'll have some rusty metal for you, but this week, we've got a huge twist that you won't want to miss. Then I give you my freshly forged pick where I offer my opinion on a new release I think you should get into. And later in the episode, we offer you our big four Aerosmith songs. You'll want to stick around until the end to hear which songs we choose. So if you like what you hear today and want to listen to some of our other episodes, download us on your favorite podcast platform, click subscribe, and you'll get our newest episode every week. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions. So if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. We're also now on YouTube, so definitely check that out. So, Kenneth, what's your Rusty Metal pick this week? All right, so my twist this week on Rusty Metal is basically an alteration of the rules on a technicality. (laughs) So... If you, if you get what that means, I am picking Anthrax, The Greater of Two Evils, which was released in 2004. So it's already a 17-year-old album in and of itself, but the songs that they recorded are no younger than 31 years old. So that's, uh, that's pretty interesting that way, too. Um, it was released on Sanctuary Records, it was produced by Anthrax, and it was recorded at Avatar Studios in New York City. The album contains 14 tracks, most of which are the more popular Anthrax songs, and it has a couple of deep tracks in there as well. And the songs are taken off their first five albums. So uh, there's three songs from Fistful of Metal, three songs from Spreading the Disease, five songs from Among the Living, one song from State of Euphoria, and two songs from Persistence of Time. Now, the CD version uh, on the last song, Gung Ho, it contains a hidden track, Alone Justice, which is also from Spreading the Disease. And the vinyl version and or the Japanese version contains three additional songs, one of which is actually um, Lone Justice because they they removed it as a hidden track and they turned it into a regular track, uh, which was a bonus track. <laughs> <laughs> so that that adds uh, one more song from Fistful, or actually one more song from Spreading Disease, another from Fistful, and one from Persistence. So, and this is the last album to contain Rob Caggiano on lead guitar, and all the tracks were chosen by a fan vote that was uh, done from via the band's website, and uh, they chose all these songs, and this is what they came up with for this track listing. And the, the song "Lone Justice" so happened to be one of those songs where it was like a. I don't know if somebody, you know, at the time we didn't know so much about bots and, and, and programming things, but they basically had overloaded the, the website with the request for Lone Justice for some reason. Uh, and the basic tracks for the song, for the most part, was recorded live in the studio over a two-day period back in 2004. So this is a pretty cool album. Um, the reason why I ended up picking up is because I just got the vinyl version in the mail today. It's really cool. I love the sound on it. I mean, it, it upgrades the sound from Fistful and, and Spreading the Disease to a more modern version of the sound. The guitars are a lot more crunchier. Um, some of the songs, they change the keys to make it sound uh, darker, 
heavier. Uh, they've, you know, it's just a really, really cool uh, recording. I think Rob Caggiano is, is a really good producer, so he helped the band get this sound, and I, I really like the way that the album sounds. The drums sound great, guitars sound great. It's clear, crystal clear, and clean. Yeah, I'm, I actually really like that one. Um, you know, I my feelings on John Bush in, in Anthrax, I, I always preferred him because he was really the first one that I heard and introduced me to the band and unfortunately like everything that followed you know as far as their history the fallout um you know it's it's good that they're back with Joey and they're happy and they're doing you know great things the last couple albums have been great um but it was just kind of a weird situation they're kind of going back and forth between singers and you know what ended up well and fine uh was kind of a rocky road yeah, it was it was kind of weird, you know. I, I felt bad because right after this is when, you know, they like you said they they got back with Joey and it's like they had that flux. Joey decided to leave and they asked John to come back and he said no, and then they got Dan Nelson and they fired him and you know it was just uh, it was just a mess for a while. And it's a, it's a shame, but they got it all together. They're back in, you know, quote unquote happy with themselves now. So that's a good thing. So, so what's your pick of the week this week? Or your your right. your freshly forged? Excuse me. All right. So this one is is one that uh, kind of came out of nowhere, but I guess it's been leading up to it for quite a while. That nobody just picked up on the uh, the hints. Um, this is the new track and new video from Iron Maiden, the writing on the wall. Um, the video is incredible. I. I I was blown away with the quality of it. It is it is its own movie. If you've ever seen heavy metal back in the 80s, um, this is even better animation quality. But uh, this is in the same vein. I mean, there's, there's so much to it. Um, it's one of those videos you have to watch several times because there's all kinds of Easter eggs in it, references... And it's it's just really incredible. A couple guys from from uh, that had worked with Pixar in the past uh, worked as executive producer and creative director. That's Mark Andrews and Andrew Gordon. Um, it was directed by uh, Nikos Livesey, who I'm not quite familiar with, but I mean he did a stellar job on it. And where this all kind of came about was um, the. The band had seen uh, Rammstein's Deutschland video, which is its own short film, and they said we want to do something of this caliber, but we're not we're not Rammstein, so we're not going to do the same kind of thing. We're going to do our own thing, and they put together this really incredible video, and uh, the song itself is is great as well. It's got this kind of western vibe to it, um, but it's still definitely an Iron Maiden track. Uh, I will say that when I first listened to the video online, um, on YouTube, the quality of the audio wasn't great. I don't know if it's been fixed yet, uh, but the, the audio quality is much better on other platforms. So if you listen to it, um, I don't, I don't know if the, the, like I said, I don't know if the YouTube video corrected the audio, um, but definitely listen to it on other platforms first. So you get a, a feel for the song. And then check out the video, and you'll be blown away. 
I like the video. I've seen it a couple times, but I haven't really got too deep into it. Um, but I have listened to the song uh, several times, and it, it, it's definitely growing on me. Um, it was one of those things, for me, it didn't grab me right away. Uh, but then again, I was also, you know, had my mind in like 10 different other things at the same time. Um, but when I got a chance to really pay attention to it, I was like, yeah, this is a pretty cool song. I do like the Western vibe of the song, um, so that's pretty cool. Um, and talking about the, the, the sound quality between YouTube and the other platforms, uh, I must say, between this song and, and hopefully the song is a representation of the stuff that's on the album, this is much better stuff uh, production-wise and quality-wise than they have done in the last few albums. Um, they've purposely went out of their way not to master uh, certain, uh, like the last album was not mastered. Um, the previous album before that was just mixed live in the studio. Um, so there's not a lot of production thought that goes in behind their their albums lately um but this one sounds so far a lot better some people complained about it but those people obviously have not heard you know uh, you know stuff off of book of souls or 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 um the final frontier because those albums are, are a little rough in terms of production value but this one seems to be a little bit better so i like it i like it a lot it is definitely better in in, in production quality overall um but I gotta say, seeing a video of this caliber in 2000 or 2011, wow! Seeing a video quality of this caliber in 2021 just blew me away. Seeing something of this depth, um, a lot of thought went into it, and I'm as as somebody who was an animator before, um, I'm I'm blown away. That's it. It, again, it was awesome. I, I didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing all the way through um, just because of my time limitations. So I'm really looking forward to just being able to sit down and, and take a look at it. So, all right. Well, that brings us to our main topic. And I'm, I'm kind of glad we picked this topic this week um, because we have not on this show shown a lot of love towards Aerosmith. Actually, the, the one time that we did mention Aerosmith, it was because we ragged the crap out of them about their first album cover. And I'm pretty sure that they would be laughing at that too. Um, but musically, <laughs> we haven't talked a lot about them. I mean, they're not a metal band for the most part, but they turned themselves into an 80s metal band at the time. You know, the, the they joined the ranks of the Rats and the Poisons and the Cinderella's of the 80s. Uh, and, it was, and they joined it rather late in the 80s too, because it wasn't like their resurgence happened early in the 80s, even though they did get back together in the early 80s. It wasn't until they did Permanent Vacation, which wasn't until 1987, that they really had their resurgence. You know, and then Pump came out in 1990, so technically that's not a an 80s album, but it, it's a, just a continuation of what they started with Permanent Vacation. So, they, you know, they're not a metal band overall, but they played hard rock, and, that, and this show is about hard rock and heavy metal. So we're showing them a little love today um, by going head-to-head with two of their better albums, Toys in the Attic and Rocks. So 
just to kind of go over Toys in the Attic briefly. This is the third album from the band. It was released on April 8th, 1975, and it was released on Columbia Records. It was recorded at the record plant in New York City, and it was produced by Jack Douglas. And this album went on to sell 8 million copies in the U.S. So it was a pretty big album for the band. Um, It's one of their biggest selling albums of all time, if not their biggest selling album. Just a kind of brief thing about Aerosmith real quick. Aerosmith is a very unique band in, in that... They have obviously been around for nearly 50 years, and they have morphed themselves in a kind of way. You know, they were this really heavy, hard blues band in the 70s. They turned into a, you know, an 80s metal band, um, which for the most part um, is is still blues-based. You know, everything it it basically is. Uh, And then... They kind of went back to it when they when they decided they wanted to get Jack Douglas to produce them again. Um, after their Nine Lives LP, they did the Honkin' on Bobo and they brought Jack Douglas back. And then the last two albums, uh, Honkin' on Bobo and Music from Another Dimension, were produced by Jack Douglas. And you could see Jack kind of lead them and steer them into that blues direction. Obviously, Honkin' on Bobo is a is a covers album of old blues standards, and then Music from Another Dimension. Um, you know, he put he kind of pushed them. They they kept their modern sound. They kept their modern songwriting. But there's a little hinge, you know, tinge of excuse me, of that old blues sound. Now the reason why I bring it up is because um, on these albums you're gonna hear certain types of blues things, and and one of the ones you, you you're gonna hear or you're gonna hear me reference is R and B. Now it's not R and B that you're used to hearing today when you you know you put on a an urban station or or whatever they want to call it nowadays. Um, it's R and B rhythm and blues back from the '50s. That style of R and B, and it's literally rhythm and blues. Even though that acronym, it, it, it that's what that means. But the music has changed dramatically over the years, and so that's you know. This is the kind of band that they are, and, and Aerosmith is really good at incorporating a lot of those old rhythm and blues elements, uh, specifically the jazz parts, the heavy guitar, and and the saxophone that goes along with it. So you're going to hear me reference R&B a few times throughout this uh, this evening, and that's what Aerosmith is, you know, for the most part. Uh, do you agree with me? Disagree with me? I mean, there's some definite hip hop elements in in some of the songs as well. So I I think in a lot of ways Steven Tyler was ahead of his time and yeah there's the old R&B but there's also some hip hop elements with a few of the tracks we're going to talk about. Okay. All right, so let's dive into it. We're going to be doing Toys in the Attic first. Um and we'll start straight up with song number 1, Toys in the Attic off of that album. Man, I don't I don't know what to say. That song really just kicks it into into high gear as soon as you you know put the needle down or press play whichever one you want to look at it i mean it's got a great riff it's got a great rhythm you know one of the things that i like about the song is how it makes you feel like you're moving uh i don't i don't know if you if you get that sense of it but it it, the song when you're listening to it makes you feel like you're moving moving forward it has this hectic pace and the way it's mixed there's just i don't know this for me there's a sense of movement so I don't know if, if, how how else to explain it, but I really really like this song. 
It definitely has, like, it's a rocker, but it has a blues and a punk edge. It's got a really cool vocal melody, which really leads the song. Um, And my only gripe with the track is that it never really hits this level of energy again. It starts things off so well that it's not like anything is is bad after it. It just, I, I just want that level of energy back. But it never quite hits that again. But that's not a bad thing, as we'll talk about. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, and and it's you, it, there's something similar happens in rocks as well. So that that's the that's the funny thing about the, these two albums, and this is the reason why I picked them because there's a lot of similarities between the two. Um, yeah, so it it definitely doesn't pick up again. On the second song, Uncle Salty. Now that's a it's an R and B rhythm and blues song, um, and it's just a really strange song topic. It is about an orphanage, and there's a sex abuser in the orphanage who's taken advantage of one of the little girls, and Stephen has put himself in the place of the little girl in the song, and you know he he made the song, and it's basically a sad song, um, and it sounds sad. Um, so it, it's overall to me, while it has some really cool R&B elements to it, it it's not really a, a, a song that, that's memorable for me. I mean, it slows things down quite a bit from the last track. Um, but it does have, like, my I guess my favorite part of the track is the outro, which has, like, this kind of 60s-ish uh, vocal layering, not unlike, like, the Guess Who and some of those those bands of the, of the time. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not one that really ever stuck you know, sticks out to me, but it's, it's not a bad track. Right. It, it's relatively just kind of there for me, you know, um, <clears throat> which leads itself into, uh, Adam's apple. Um, and essentially this is the story of Adam and Eve in a blues rock song. Uh, it's a very Aerosmith kind of song. Um, so it's pretty standard. Um, I like it. It's, it's, you know, it's got a cool little vibe to it. But again, it's not one of these songs that is going to, you know, I got to sit there and hit repeat over and over again. Um, I mean, it's kind of a, it's got some elements of like Credence Clearwater in it. It's, I mean, it's a bluesy rocker and like the, the, the vocal con, I mean, the lyrical content of singing about the Garden of Eden in this kind of bluesy rock style is kind of cool. Um, what I do like about the mix is that it brings out every instrument at a, at a certain point during the song. So you're getting um, features from every member of the band throughout the song, which is kind of cool. I, I I like Jack Douglas and, and his production style. Um, and I just recently heard an interview with him on the Eddie Trunk show. And he talks, he, he talks briefly about Toys in the Attic. Uh, and they, they talk briefly about Rocks. And, you know, this is one of those they did in the studio um, as opposed to Rocks where they did it in a uh, a warehouse, I guess you could say. They had rented a warehouse to, to, to put all their stuff away and, and they basically set up there and they brought the, the, the recording board there and they just recorded what they what they were jamming. And so they, they structured songs, put them all together and it was relatively very live vibe to it to some degree. This one, studio recording, which is fine, uh, nothing wrong with it, but I like Jack Douglas's style of production. He, he definitely brings out each instrument and does a really good job at the mix of it, so 
I, I get what you're saying on that. Um, song number four is the classic Walk This Way. I mean, what else is there to say about this song? It is a classic. It's one of the greatest riffs of all time. It's one of the most famous drum patterns of all time, you know, and it's a song about coming of age, with heavy emphasis on the coming, if <laughs> you get what I mean. And so I, I love this song. I mean, this is just a classic Aerosmith song. Uh, I mean, to to me, everybody knows the guitar riff. Everybody knows the, the drum beat, like you said. But I think what really stands out to me as this kind of underlying greatness of the track is the the dance beat that Tom Hamilton lays down. It's it, it's something understated that really adds that that like you can have a great meal from a great chef and there's like the garlic butter on top or you know whatever adds that just that chef special you know like that whatever makes it so great and I think that's what it is is just that that baseline that you don't even think about because it's under it's underneath everything else. But if it wasn't there, it wouldn't be the song that it is. I totally understand what you're saying. That's and that's a it's a very good point. I mean, the one of the biggest things about Aerosmith is Tom Hamilton. He is such an underrated bass player. Um, I mean, I'm sure everyone gives props to him, but in in the general scheme of things, for the fan public, I don't think he gets as much credit as as he deserves on on, on the songs that he's done with Aerosmith. Uh, because he has done some really cool things, all the way from "Dream On" to to their latest the, the stuff on their latest album. So it is he is definitely underrated. Um, the next song on the album is a big ten inch record, and this is where the old rhythm and blues really stands out. Uh, this song is uh, a cover song from 1952, and it is relatively. Um, note for note, a, a, a replica. I mean, there's some changes and stuff like that, but style-wise, it's it's relatively identical. He's got the saxophones in there. Um, there's a lot of very very close similarities. They don't stray too far from the original arrangement. They they, they did move some things around, but it's pretty standard to the, to to the way it was originally done. And there's nothing wrong with that. They do a really good version of it, and and I like it. This is one of my favorite. Um, Aerosmith songs, it's just it the the double entendre on this song is outstanding to the point where this song itself, since the original in '52 all the way up to now, is considered one of the greatest double entendre songs of all time. So this is a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool song. Yeah, I mean it, it takes things in a different direction. I mean it's definitely a rockabilly track. Um, has pianos, horns, and harmonica. And I think that's really what stands out too is that Steven Tyler shows not only his vocal chops, but he he shows that he is excellent on harmonica, which is something that would kind of permeate through the rest of their career. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and just just think about it. There's a lot of songs that you don't realize has or have that many um, horns in them. I mean, a lot of songs on Pump. You know, a lot of songs on Get a Grip. I mean, it, it's weird. You don't, uh, a lot of people don't realize it unless you're, you know, a musician and, and, and those are the things you look for. Most people kind of glaze over that stuff or excuse me, mm-hmm. most people gloss over that stuff and they don't realize what's what they're hearing. 
You know, uh, the song "The Other Side" off of you know Pump is a perfect example. You know, it it it's so blended into the music that you you hear it, you don't realize that it's you know a horn section, and and this one, you know, he does a great job. So I I, I love how the band incorporates so many different elements, uh, and the harmonica is definitely one because that's going to come up later in, in one of my one of the songs that I pick for my big four. <laughs> so. Um, next song is another classic, Sweet Emotion. And this is one of my favorite Aerosmith songs. I love the bass intro. It's a nice soft buildup um, with the vibra slap going off every so often in the background. Um, it builds to the chorus and, you know, it leads, you know, it builds to the chorus and then it leads into the verse. So it doesn't even, it's one of those songs that doesn't start with a verse. It starts with the chorus. But the chorus is not played to full effect. It's a really cool way that they do it uh, on this song. Um, this is just one of those songs that, that is so well written and so structured. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I've, I would say this is Tom Hamilton's best bass line, at least in my opinion. Um, this song, I mean, it's just killer. Uh, Steven Tyler, again, shows that he's way ahead of his time with this kind of semi-rap delivery you know, same kind of thing he, he's doing with Walk This Way. Um, you know, this is 1975, and he's and he's got this rhythm going that's very similar to what would be hip-hop and rap later on, and it's really impressive. And that's, that's why, say, Walk This Way, you know, they did with Run DMC later. Um, mixed with the vocal harmony, I mean, this to me is, is one of Aerosmith's best tracks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is... This song to me is a masterpiece. It's it's a classic, um, and the funny cool thing I read something today about it is that Steven Tyler was talking about this song at one point. I think it was during the, the making of his uh, by the, the Aerosmith biography. Um, they recorded some hand claps, and in the studio, the band got there and they sang "Fuck You, Frank," <laughs> and they put it on the song. But they they flipped the tape and they put it backwards, and you can hear the hand claps on that segment in the song between the chorus and the verse, you know, the part that goes, that part. And mm -hmm. every time they hit uh, the snare drum, you're hearing this reverse snap. And that's that to me, that's the hand claps. I don't hear the fuck you Frank backwards, but then you really can't tell that's what it's saying. So, but I don't hear vocals going backwards. I do hear that slap going backwards though. Um, so, it's a pretty pretty interesting thing that the tidbit that he put in there about that song, uh, and the fuck you Frank is a is a a guy who was their original manager who basically sold them off to uh, Lieber and Craig's, or Krebs, however you say that, that that management company's name. So they weren't too happy about that. All right, so the next song is no more no more. Um, this is a really cool song. Uh, it's a, it's got a really cool blues riff. I like the clean guitar intro that leads into that blues riff. Um, this is one of the band's classic songs. Um, I really like the, the short verse, quick chorus structure of the song because they just go back and forth with that until they throw in like a little bridge, which is essentially uh, a, a accorded version, very, very simple version of the, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, the, the, the main riff and then they go back into the, the chorus verse chorus verse thing real quick so that, that's a pretty cool thing um what do you think of the song 
You know, it's got this kind of little Richard piano part underneath. <laughs> yeah, which is which is kind of funny. Um, I mean, it's a diverse and bright track. It's just, I don't know. For me, it never stood out as anything particularly interesting to me. To me, it's catchy because you got that no more, no more. That that part of it to me is catchy. Um, mm. You know, and it's become one of the one of their standard songs. I mean, fans like it. It's but it, they like it because of the catchiness. Is it? It's it. It's one of those songs. that's just so simple that you realize. Why didn't I think of that? You know, as like an another musician type thing. You know, it's it's that's one of those things about that song. Um, Velvet Revolver did a cover of this song on the bonus edition of their Contraband album, which is their debut album, and uh, they do a, another killer version of it. I know Slash is a huge Aerosmith fan, so I, I can see why that was one of the songs that was done. All right, next song is Round and Round. Now, this song is different, man. This is a, a dark Aerosmith song. Uh, you know, considering the rest of the album, for me, that the, this song was made almost like it was... Like they were tripping, they were high on something, like or or under some drug induced stupor. It was is really weird song in comparison to the rest of the album, and it almost feels like the music is is part of that. You know, when you have a documentary on a band and and all thing all of a sudden things go sideways or something dark happens to them, this is the kind of song that's played in the background. <laughs> so that that this is a a really weird song to me. What's your opinion on it? I mean, I really like it. Um, to me, it's like them kind of digging into like Black Sabbath territory. Um, you know, it, there's some guitar overdubs, some vocal distortion. Uh, I mean, I think it's really cool, and it shows a different dimension to the band. It is, it is the kind of oddball on the album. But if you really think about it, there's there's a lot of diversity on the album as a whole, and it's not that far of a stretch to kind of go in a little bit different direction and be experimental. Um, but I really like it. It is, it is a little bit darker tone, um, but I like it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it, it, it is a dark song. It, it I, I, I did fail to mention it's not a bad song it, for, for me, at least. It's just one of these songs that just caught me off guard because it was like, man, this is really different than the rest of the album. Um, but it is, it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, again, it's not a standout track for me, but it, it's it's okay. Um, finally, the, the album ends with You See Me Crying. And this is your standard 70s love song ballad. Uh, and it, it was recorded with a string orchestra, so it's got this very grand sound to it. Um, but it also has a very 70s sound to it as far as just the whole arrangement, the structure of the song, the production, the, the the string instruments it's 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 a good song but it's a it's one of those like you know it's a love song ballad it's pretty standard to me there's nothing that really sticks out and says wow this is a really cool ballad it's just standard for me yeah i mean there's a couple interesting things about it where apparently this is a little bit of a, a touchy subject for the band because some of the members didn't play on it um Whit, brad whitford plays lead instead of joe perry and so apparently Joe Perry didn't even play on the recording. Um, and there's there's a couple things that are shaky on that. That's why they don't really ever play it. And then one thing that's really funny is Steven Tyler heard this song on the radio and thought, man, that's a really good track. We should cover it. 
and then Joe Perry told him, that's us, fuckhead. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, I could, you know, that's, that's typical Stephen just not remembering his stuff because, you know, they were pretty stoned throughout most of the 70s. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. All right, so that brings us to the end of this album. Um, like I said at the beginning, it sold 8 million copies. It is a really strong album, but most of it is is the strength and the sales of this are based on those two really huge songs, you know, Walk This Way and Sweet Emotion, um, and, and some of the other tracks like like uh, No More No More and um, Toys in the Attic. So there's, there's that that push it, but... It, it it is uh it is very eclectic as you said so I like the album, um, but we're gonna head now into Rocks. Rocks is the fourth album from the band. It was released on May fourteenth, nineteen seventy six, on Columbia Records, which is basically thirteen months, or just a little over thirteen months after Toys in the Attic was recorded and released. Um, it was recorded at the warehouse in Waltham, Massachusetts, and at the record plant in New York City. It was produced by Jack Douglas, and this time they specifically um, put down Aerosmith as the ones who did the arrangements, and this album sold 4 million copies in the United States. Now, 4 million copies is nothing to sneeze at at all, but when you think about how Toys in the Attic was this huge seller that literally doubled the sales of this album, some people considered this album to be a disappointment, but none of those people are actually in the band. Aerosmith themselves consider this to be one one of their finer albums, if not their best album. So uh, let's get into the songs while we're here. Let's do it. All right. The album starts off with Back in the Saddle. And to use uh, a pretty great pun, uh, this this song rocks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's kind of similar in the same way that the the uh, Toys in the Attic starts off where it's really high energy. Uh, it, th- I wouldn't say though that the album never gets back to the same amount of energy because there are a couple tracks, uh, that, that kind of have the same heaviness and, and, and bring about that same level. So to some degree, it does kind of set the tone for the album. Um, but it, I mean, it also kind of sets the tone for their career, you know, cause this became a staple opener for the band. Um, the song simultaneously has a cowboy and rock aesthetic and it has some like really cool sound effects that were added into it. So they're, they're showing a little bit of experimentation. Uh, but like you mentioned earlier, this is, is more of a live sound than what you heard in the previous album. Yeah, this, this song definitely has that live vibe to it. Um, you can see that it, it wasn't just the recording studio where it was, it was done. You could tell that there's something else to it. Um, this song, as much as you say it's it's an up-tempo rocker and it's similar in vain to Toys in the Attic, to me it doesn't have that same similarity. So I disagree a little bit there, but there is a song that's coming up that does have that similarity. Um, that's that's not what I was saying. What I was oh. saying is it, as far as it's setting the tone for the album, mm-hmm. it has that same kind of vibe where it feels a little bit more exciting than what, what would follow with okay, some of the I other tracks. And so you, you, a lot of bands, when they start the album off, you, they start with something heavy and then you have like kind of this return to that sound, you know, throughout the album. 
um, where Aerosmith doesn't really stick to any particular format. You know, they 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 just put out good tracks and then put them on an album. I mean, right? That's, okay, I get that's that. The way it feels. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, I mean, the song is song kicks ass. I, I love the song. This is one of their better songs. Um, you know, I, I, when I think of Aerosmith a lot, you know, and, and it's so simple because you you sit there and you use the word back a lot during the day, and and you know, there are just times you just say. You say back and you go back. You know, you just pretend like you're Steven Tyler for a second. You know, it's it's just weird, but that that's how ingrained the song is into a lot of people who like rock music. So I like the song. It's it's super cool. Um, it, it it is a good way to start off an album. So I do I do like it for that reason. All right, that leads us into track two, Last Child. Last Child starts with this kind of dreamlike intro, but takes you right into this funk beat. In the vein of Walk This Way in Sweet Emotion, the song has kind of a bit of a hip-hop flavor. Uh, Perry plays slap steel guitar and also features uh, Paul uh, Prestopino on on banjo. So there's a lot of you know stuff going on here some experimentation with the band and it's a, it's a pretty cool track like if you if you like the the like funkier end of some of the stuff they do it's a really good track yeah it's 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 a cool song it's it's definitely different definitely funky i mean i like the funkiness that's throughout this song um it it is one of those that you you don't expect i mean coming off of back in the saddle or coming off of anything off of toys in the attic this is definitely different so um, I like the song, um, but at the same time, it's not one of these things that I'm going to sit there and, and listen to over and over and over again. So, um, but I like it. So it's yeah. It's okay. In the context of the album, I, I enjoy it. But it is yeah, I would say I'm probably not going to go out of my way just to listen to it. <laughs> right. All right. So track three is "Rats in the Cellar." This is probably the heaviest track on the album that might be contested with one other. Uh, it's a fast rocker. It's a great guitar, or it's got a great guitar solo. Uh, but the the guitar solo starts off combined with a harmonica combo, which is really cool, and then kind of leads into the guitar solo. Um, and it's 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 funny because it it's just this fast burner from beginning to end, and when you learn that it's written about the the life and and death of the band's drug dealer, um, it's kind of interesting in that context because it is such a fast like fast pace from beginning to end and just kind of burns out fast. Like a drug dealer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I like the song a lot, and this is the song that I was referring to that is. Um, basically like the little sister or little brother of Toys in the Attic. I mean, I almost think of it as Toys in the Attic 2. Um, there's a lot of similarities to me when I heard the song to Toys in the Attic. Um, even even in some of the riffs that, that, that that's on this song. So it's yeah. a cool song. I like this a lot. And, and to me, this is, should have been the song that opens up the album. You put in Last Child and then Back in the Saddle. would have. I think if you flip those two songs, Rats and Back... Um, it, it, mind you, the album is still going to be great, but I think it would have been that much better. Um, but then again, who's to argue the album sold 4 million copies, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I can kind of see what you're talking about though. Um, I think either way would be a good way to put the album out, to be honest, but, uh, this is what we got. <laughs> I'm telling you, we need to write, write to our congressman, have him change it or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
All right, so track four is Combination, which is kind of funny because it's literally a combination dual vocal by uh, Tyler and Perry. Um, not Tyler Perry, but uh, <laughs> not Medea. Um, so, um, to me, this is one of the better solos on the albums, um, and it has this just crazy fr- frantic outro uh, that almost stresses me out when I listen to it. But uh, but it's a really, yeah, I mean, it's it's a different song, but it shows that there's, you know, sometimes there's tracks in an album that just show that there's a lot of talent in the band and that's kind of what this feels like it to me it's not a super standout but it shows like a a level of dimension to the band that you may not hear in every track right i agree with you there's not a lot of uh um, stuff that of this song that is, is memorable to me um but i do like the riff it's a, it is got it does have a cool riff um and it almost borrows some from sweet emotion in terms of the riff. So there's a little tinge of that in there. And what I'm getting because these two albums are so close to each other being 13 months, uh, you know, you're talking about obviously one, the the same five people, the same sixth person is as in terms of Jack Douglas and the producer and Jack Douglas was very close to the band. So there was, you know, when Jack talked about it, he talked about, the band in the in the us fashion you know we were doing this and we went to massachusetts and we went on tour so there was a, there was a lot of jack was very close so there's so many similarities on these albums you know one the eclecticness two the riffing um it, it's pretty cool how that has transpired and that's part of the reason why these two albums were so big this song is like some of the songs on toys it, it, although there's some coolness factor to it, there's something that leaves, you know, leaves something to be desired with it. All right. So the the fifth track is "Sick as a Dog." Uh, you know, it's kind of a simple rocker with a you know single guitar part. Uh, it was interesting to read that both Tyler and and Perry are playing bass on this track. Um, you know, it's it's a bluesy track. It doesn't it doesn't really stand out to me. Um, I know it's it's somewhat popular in their their catalog, but this this to me is not a, a standout track. Um, I I like the melody of this song. Um, this is a song from time to time that will get back in stuck in my head for some reason. I like the chorus. I mean, to me, it's a catchy song. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that I find funny about this song is that that breakdown that's about three quarters of the way through the song, where they're just basically playing the main riff over and over again um it reminds me of like when you do a breakdown in a concert you know you 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 just lower the sound and the band is just jamming and you know the singers high five in the front row or whatever you know and for whatever reason the 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 band that comes to mind that that would have stolen something from this song is guns and roses i I don't know why but that's just something that comes to mind Uh, but you know, because of that breakdown, I don't know if it's some, something similar that they've done, or whatever. But that, that's what comes to mind for me. Well, I can see Guns N' Roses doing a lot of Aerosmith. Oh yeah, um, especially with their Use Your, Use Your Illusion albums. Um, you know, they delved more into some of that territory, so I can I can see the similarity for sure. 
All right, so track six is Nobody's Fault. To me, this has kind of like a Led Zeppelin immigrant immigrant song vibe. Um, the backbeat drums and the bass are, are really what stand out to me here. It's a really heavy track, and this is the one I was referencing when I say uh, it might when I said Rats in the Cellar might be the heaviest track on the album. This also might be, you know, it just depends on your perception, I guess. Um, and it's it's the song that stands out to me as a metal fan because it does kind of delve into some of the metal territory where a lot of their other tracks do not. Um, it's also got a lot more serious lyrics, which also lends to being more in the metal vein. For 1976, I mean, this is this is again ahead of its time. And uh, I know that some some of, you know, uh, excuse me, I know that some heavy metal guys really reference this as one of their their favorite songs from the band. Um, So it's kind of interesting to to see this other again, another dimension of the band coming out with a track like this. And, And I wasn't particularly familiar with it. Um, before, you know, listening to this album again for, you know, for this, this episode. Um, but it kind of stood out to me as one I listened to several times going into this. And I would think, you know, if I am putting it on a playlist, it's probably going to end up being one of my favorite, uh, Aerosmith songs. It, it is, it is a different song for them. Um, it, it's a, it's another dark song. So it's very, you know, in, again, going back to its comparison to Toys in the Attic, it's dark like Round and Round, but it's not the same song, obviously. Um, it's got a really cool riff, uh, and, and Stephen incorporates the many different voices that he has into this one song, which is pretty cool. I like the song a lot, and I, I agree with you. It's a very heavy metal kind of song, Um for, for that time period, for them especially, um, you know, and you, you mentioned something about metal bands liking this song. Testament actually put it on their second album, The New Order. Um, that was, I think, the, the second to last track or third to last track on the album or something like that. That's right, they did. You know, so so that um, song, I mean, it, it's a much better version of an Aerosmith song that they did than the, the version of Draw the Line that they did later on on their Greatest Hits album. But, you know, again, yeah, I agree with you. There is, there is this, this um, heaviness to this, out, to this song that, that I like about it. And it, it's, because it stands out like that, because it is so heavy, I agree with you. It's one of those songs that you kind of like, yeah, yeah, all right, Aerosmith can rock hard, you know, type of thing. So I like it. All right, so the, the seventh track is Get the Let Out. Um, so one thing that stands out to me is this is almost like a pro- prototype for Ragdoll, you know, a song that would come up later on um, on Permanent Vacation. And it's that same kind of rim- rhythmic vocal style that would become a thing with, with Steven Tyler as time would go on, too. And... You know, as cool of a song as it is, it just kind of leaves me wanting to listen to Ragdoll. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I can see that. Um, you know, it's it's a blues riff. I mean, it's a it's a blues rock riff. I mean, it, so it's pretty 
I guess by today's standards, it's pretty standard. Um, and I, I totally understand your comparison to, to Ragdoll. Um, and I, and that's one of the things I was saying about, uh, that I wrote down about this song that I like how the melody follows the riff. So, um, but overall, it's a good song, but it's not a great song. It's something that it, it, it probably could have had that would have made it a better song, but it's still a, a pretty good song. Yeah, I think I think what would have made it a better song would be being Ragdoll. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so track eight is Lick and a Promise. Um, this is another kind of rockabilly style song. Um, but it doesn't have like the piano and, and horns and everything. It's just, it's, it's still a rock tone to it, but it has that rockabilly, um, rhythm and it's, you know, it's kind of a boogie, which makes sense with, you know, it it being about hooking up with groupies. So it's a fun song, but it, it, you know, it's, it's another one of those. I'm at the end of the album. It's a song that kind of fits there, but a lot of times you won't get to it because it's it's not the best. Right. I have this down as a cool rocker, and I, I, I know it's a relative fan favorite, but for me it's nothing special. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, lots of Aerosmith songs have this riff and this style to them. Um, so, there's like, again, it, there's nothing that stands out about the song. Although, I must say, the best part about this song is when the band actually sings the chorus you know licking a promise they when they finally do that halfway through the song it's like oh okay there's something else to the song because for the most part the song just kind of stays in that same lane you know yeah the chorus is the best and i can see it being a bigger live song than than an album song right i see that too and it's funny because there's that that little trick that they add in when steven mentions the crowd keeps screaming for more where jack puts in a a crowd noise in there and so it, it it's it definitely had, lends itself more to being a live song than it does to being an album track. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we end the album off with Home Tonight. Um, while it's not my favorite track, what it does is it shows that Steven Tyler is a master of his craft and he knows just how far to bend notes vocally. I mean, if you really listen to it, I mean, and go back and listen to this track and listen to how far Stephen will take the notes and just on the verge of being out of tune and he'll bend it and then bring it back and it's just really impressive and there's a solo in the middle that I really like too so it's a it's it's not like in my top 10 by any means but I think it's a great track and it's one that you should give a second listen to if you haven't really heard it or haven't heard it in a long time um I, I can see what you're talking about with that. Um, unfortunately for me, it, it it falls into that standard that they were setting now. Where this is the album ending love song ballad. Um, almost feels like deja vu for me. And there's nothing really that says, you know, go ahead and, you know, listen to this all the way through other than maybe sitting on a couch and not wanting to get up to shut it off or lift the needle. You know, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, all right, it played. Um, and I understand that, but like I said, go back and listen to specifically how he handles his vocals, and I think you'll have a little bit more appreciation for it in that regard. Okay, I'll definitely check that out. All right, so that brings us to the end of Rocks. Um, is there anything else you want to say about the album as a whole? Um, I would say as a whole, it's a little bit more cohesive, and and 
I think what makes it more cohesive is that it has that live kind of sound to it. There, I mean, there's still a lot of variety here, but I think having songs like Back in the Saddle, Rats in the Cellar, and Nobody's Fault all have kind of that heaviness, kind of brings things together, whereas you've got, you know, You've got the set, the standard ballad, but you've also got like Last Child and Combination, which have you know a little bit more, um, I guess, like kind of heart to them in a way. You've got uh, Sick as a Dog and Get the Leg Out or Get the Lead Out, which have that kind of um, you know, um, f- f- I guess, the funk and the and the. Um, kind of rhythm and blues like you said so there is a little bit more cohesiveness where I would say there's a lot more variety in Toys in the Attic I could see that I could I could definitely see that so that brings us to the point where we sh- which one we think is better um, do you want to mention which one's better first or do you want me to go why don't you go first okay so for for me these two albums they're both excellent albums Uh, as i mentioned while we were talking about the songs there's a ton of similarities between the two albums between some of the songs themselves um but for me i think i need to go with toys in the attic um i like that just those three songs in a row between walk this way big 10 inch record and sweet emotion and then you can even add no more no more as the fourth that just that middle fat part of the album which basically is the end of side one and the beginning of side two it just, that's what does it for me uh, and and then you throw in toys in the attic the song itself that's that's where i i lean towards so for me toys in the attic wins this one um and i actually have to agree with you this week um toys in the attic the track um i like adam's apple walk this way is you know iconic uh big 10 inch record sweet emotion is one of my favorites uh round and round i found that i really like that track and it's just it's from beginning to end i think it's one of those albums that you can listen to without skipping a track um maybe the exception is uncle salty but you know it's still an interesting track just based on its lyrical content and I think I like the production better on Toys in the Attic than I like on Rocks. Rocks is cool for having that kind of live vibe to it. But I have to say I like the songs better on on Toys in the Attic as well. You know, to- Rocks has Back in the Saddle, uh, Rats in the Cellar, Nobody's Fault. Um, but there's some of the songs that to me sound like something that are developing towards something like combination sounds like it's an early experiment in dual vocals. It doesn't sound like a fully fleshed out song. Um, get the let out to me sounds like a prototype for what they would do with ragdoll. Um, a lick and a promise. It doesn't, it doesn't blow me away, but it's, you know, it's, I know it's a live, uh, you know, a potential good live track. And then Home Tonight, like I said, I have an appreciation for it for knowing that Steven Tyler can bend his vocals that much, but he would do that in later songs that were better. And so that's why I would say where Toys in the Attic full, feels like fully a fully fleshed out project, Rocks feels like developing towards something that would happen to the future. There you go. There you have it. I like that opinion. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool way to break it down, uh, personally. So this week we both agree, Toys in the Attic is is our is our choice for our head to head. All right. So that brings us to 
our big four Aerosmith songs. And I don't remember who went first last time. So uh, do you want me to take it or do you want to go ahead and take it? Go ahead and start since you started with Toys in the Attic today. All righty then. Okay, so my big four songs. I'm going to put it this way. This is really, I, I almost think of this as a very eclectic uh, view on Aerosmith and, and liking their music. Um, so I, got, I think... I think there are going to be some surprises on here, but we'll see. Number four, Hangman Jury off of Permanent Vacation. I really, really, really dig this song. And and one of the things that I really dig about it was when I first heard the song on MTV's Unplugged. I believe they opened the show with this song. And they were sitting down on the floor. They were just jamming out. The harmonica comes out. And they play this song. And I was hooked. I love this song. And so that's my number four. My number three is what it takes off of Pump. Uh, between the video that, that was all over MTV, um, the song ends the album. It is a really, really uh, cool song for me. It, there's a, a lot of depth in the lyrics for me. Um, you know, St- Stephen really just put his heart and soul into the song. And so I really feel that. And I, so I like that song a lot. Number two, Lightning Strikes off the Rock and the Hard Place album. And this is a non-Joe Perry, non-Brad Whitford song. It actually has Jimmy Crespo and Rick Dufay on guitars. This is a, an album that Aerosmith would prefer to forget in their career because it's the only album that does not have the, all the original members in it. But this song kicks ass. This is, to me, one of their best tracks. And... You know, if someone doesn't agree with me or, or doesn't think this is a killer track, then they're out of their mind because the video is is, is kind of goofy cool because they're pretending to be these 50s gang guys, you know. But uh, it, the song itself has just got a killer riff. It's just a, the song structure. I love this song. But number one for me is the classic, the masterpiece, as I mentioned earlier, Sweet Emotion. And hands down to me is the best Aerosmith song that is out there. All right. So that is a, that is a great list. I like a lot of those songs. Um, I, I really like all of them. Um, some I'm not as familiar with as others, but Aerosmith is one of those bands that has such a, a large catalog. Um, sometimes you hear a song and you're like, oh, man, I forgot that, you know, that was... That's an awesome song. And that was kind of what was happening when I was picking my list as well was I was going through and and the ones I picked, I had to really condense down the list because I had to think about how they influenced me in some way and how, you know, why they were my favorites, you know, not just that I like because I mean, I could easily make 15 or 20, you know, they have they have a great career. Uh, but my number four is one I referenced a few times when we were talking about this was Ragdoll off of Permanent Vacation. Um, I just love that song. I love the vocal rhythm. Um, it's one that kind of sticks in my head. And the multiple times that I've seen them live, um, this was one that I just really enjoyed. Um, my number three is Back in the Saddle off of Rocks. Um, it's, it's just a great opener. You know, it's it's uh, it's one of those that to me is just synonymous with the band. Um, and it, it like you said, sometimes you'll be just you'll say the word back and it's just I'm back. You know, it's like that, you know, I, you have to say it, you know, it's it's there. 
you know. Um, my number two is one I mentioned earlier that's one of my favorites, uh, is Sweet Emotion. Um, the first time I ever heard this song was, there was a, there was a, in the bowling alley that I used to go to as a kid, uh, there was the arcade uh, um, shooter game for Aerosmith, uh, where you're supposed to rescue the members of the band from some terrorist organization or something. It was ridiculous, but uh, it was just a lot of fun. It was a good memory, and uh, it was one of those songs that uh, once I did hear them uh, live, it just blew me away, and uh, it's it's been one that kind of just always sticks in my head. And my number one is off of the first album, Aerosmith, uh, Dream On. And that one to me is just one of those songs that uh, you, you, you have to admire um, what, you know, Stephen's voice changed over time and it became a little bit more gravelly. But when he was young, uh, especially, his voice was just really clean and really just accurate, you know. And he, uh, you know, he developed his sound over time, but but um, there's something about those vocals on Dream On that are just so immaculate. Um, and the song itself, not just talking about his vocals, but the song itself is extremely well written and the lyrics are great. Um, it's one of those that I, I just love, like singing in the car. And, you know, as, as much as I'd like to pick some of the deeper cuts, like these are these are fantastic songs, so that definitely has to be my number one. I I, uh, I like your list, and um, there's something I have to say about Dream On. There's two uh, two things actually. Um, the funny thing that you mentioned about uh, his vocals on Dream On, um, while listening to an interview with Jack Douglas, Jack Douglas um, mentioned that he asked Stephen to stop singing that way because he wanted Stephen to sing in his normal register because apparently that style that he was singing on the first album was not Stephen's normal register of singing. He mm-hmm. was he was purposely putting in that sound to his voice. Um, and while that can it be dangerous. Yeah, and while it worked, it, it, it worked for him because he wasn't really... It, to, it, when you listen to the way he uh, he was doing it, it wasn't a strain so much as it was just altering the pitch, and or and not even the pitch, it's kind of altering the sound using his 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 neck and his voice, you know, his vocal cords. Um, but Jack kind of fell in love with his normal voice, and he says, "Why don't you sing like that all the time?" And that's why we have that. And even on Toys in the Attic, uh, on um, oh, a couple of songs, specifically uh, Adam's Apple. He um, he uses that, or even Big Tennis Record. He uses that that alternate tone to his voice on those songs. So it, it, it's there, but not as mm-hmm. much as it used to be. Uh, and the other thing about Dream On, which I really like, the first time that I ever got a really really good stereo system in my car, I had these two big twelves, you know, and I, it was a really high end system that I that I basically saved all my money to get from my my brand new car back in 1989. So I did this in 1990. And the first time I put on dream on and right where that, that little, that little trill of the guitar ends in right before they, he cuts into the verse, there's a, a bass note that Tom Hamilton hits. I think it's like, I don't know if it was a, a, a C 
or, or if he was tuned down, but he hits that note and it rattles the entire car when I heard it. And I was like, wow, where did that note come from? And you, you can't hear it if you're listening to it on the radio. You can't really hear it if you're if you're listening to it on a bad system. You can only hear it on a system that has a subwoofer because that's how low that note gets. And I was like, damn, this is that's a note and a half, and it just will shake your eyeballs. <laughs> that's how cool that, that note is. So I love that song on there. Uh, Dream On was one of the songs I was going to pick for my big four, but the, just these the four that I ended up choosing were the ones that just really stand out to me when I sit there and I say, I want to listen to Aerosmith because I hear that's, that's kind of what I was saying was, I mean, you could easily pick so many more, but yeah, you kind of have to for you were forced to pick four. Exactly. So, all right, well, that's our big four Aerosmith songs for tonight. Chris, let them know what's up. All right. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Remember, if you like what you heard today, be sure to check us out on social media. Make sure to check us out on YouTube because we are uploading our episodes to YouTube now as well. And make sure to tune into the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya. (laughs) 